Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. The week between Christmas and New Year's is usually a time for relaxing and reflecting. This year, however, that's not the case in Georgia. We're kind of jealous of all the other 49 states who have finished their election season. That's David Key, founding pastor of Lake Oconee Community Church. It's a house of worship located between Atlanta and Augusta. He's a Baptist minister with a purple congregation. We, as everybody has been suffering from the COVID challenges that have impacted all houses of faith, and the constant just bartering, especially of negativity that we got early on in the election and now in the runoff, it's been an exhausting year, uh, 2020 as a whole, and we're ready for January the 5th to be here. That's the last day for Georgians to vote in the special election. It's a runoff to elect two United States senators on one ticket, Reverend Raphael Warnock versus Kelly Loeffler, and on the other, John Ossoff versus incumbent David Perdue. Voters will decide not only who to send to Washington, but which party will be in control of the chamber come January. And the stakes couldn't be higher. Voting began on December 14th, and already 1.5 million Georgians have cast their ballot. Now candidates, surrogates, public interest groups, including super PACs, are working day and night to get out the vote, and many are turning to negative attack ads, flooding the airwaves, including ones that target the faith and religious identity of the candidates. In July, the American Jewish publication Forward broke the story reporting that graphic analysis of a digital ad posted on Facebook by Senator Perdue's campaign intentionally distorted the length of John Ossoff's nose to make it appear longer. Ossoff is a 33-year-old investigative journalist and filmmaker. He also happens to be Jewish and is challenging the 71-year-old one-term incumbent, Senator David Perdue. To Emory University assistant political science professor Dr. Audra Gillespie, that alteration, while subtle, is a well-honed tactic used in political advertising to appeal to implicit bias and plant seeds of fear. Jewish Americans have, and, and Jewish people across the world have been portrayed, and in particular looking at their nose as a marker of their ethno-religious heritage. That's something that is problematic. It's not surprising that the Ossoff campaign would condemn that and that the Purdue campaign would be forced to adjust. I see that as being somewhat similar to ads where African-American candidates or Latino candidates have their features darkened um, to make them appear more menacing. Sort of given uh, the history of visual portrayals um, of people of color, of religious minorities in the United States, these are things that people always have to be very vigilant against. But the race where faith has become a central attack line is the one between Reverend Raphael Warnock and Kelly Loeffler. To Reverend Key, the attacks manipulating Reverend Warnock's words and record, which go back nearly 20 years, go too far. Since the November election date and into the runoff, most of the religious attention has been given to Reverend Warnock. Reverend Warnock is a graduate of Union Theological Seminary, uh, where he studied with some of the leading theologians in the country. He also was on staff at Abyssinian Baptist Church, which is a major uh, pulpit there in New York City. 
him because of his credentials and because of his multiple decades of preaching, uh, there's lots of material there uh, for folks to be able to look through and to try to find things that they can weaponize. A lot of it is pulled out of context. Uh, and in pulling out of context, uh, they try to make it sound more horrifying. They try to make it unpatriotic. Gillespie sees the framing in stark terms that play on religion and race. I see the ads as juxtaposing white evangelical Christianity with black liberation theology. And I do view the ads as putting black liberation theology on trial. I also see the racial subtext and actually explicit text in these particular ads. So I think that there are lots of things that are are going on here. Since 2005, Reverend Warnock has served as the senior pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta. He is the youngest pastor to serve in that role, and it's a public one at a storied church that has been at the center of the civil rights story in America. It is the spiritual home of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and his father. Reverend Warnock has used the pulpit to engage in ongoing issues in Georgia and to speak to those unfolding around the country. In 2014, he appeared on Interfaith Voices in an episode titled Soul Searching After Ferguson. The conversation was with Reverend Graylin Hager and Reverend Holness about the role of the black church today in addressing systemic racism. Certainly we have seen uh, clergy there on the ground in Ferguson from day one engaging this issue But there have also been incredible young people, many of whom are not connected to anybody's church, truth be told. And the young people really, I think, have led this movement and in some ways have pushed the clergy along. And uh, but we, we certainly have seen clergy on the ground playing very heroic roles. Sometimes the only thing between the young people and the police were clergy who literally Uh, laid their bodies on on the line. So this has been the legacy of the black church at its best, this this commitment to justice-making in the world. Reverend Warnock's book, The Divided Mind, Theology, Piety, and Public Witness, wrestles honestly with the challenges facing the black church today, both in the area of social justice issues and the struggles in a post-civil rights era. Now he is asking Georgians to send him from the pulpit Martin Luther King once served to Washington. His opponent, Republican nominee Kelly Loeffler, is also a newcomer to politics. She is a wealthy financial industry executive who was appointed to the seat on January 6, 2020. That's when Senator Johnny Isaacson resigned for health reasons. According to Gillespie, the recent attacks mounted by Loeffler and her surrogates are part of her ongoing political evolution, moving to the far right of her party. So uh, Kelly Loeffler, when she was appointed to the seat, was a political unknown. Many people think that Brian Kemp uh, chose her to replace Johnny Isaacson in part because of a hope that she would appeal to uh, more moderate, college-educated white women in the suburbs who would see themselves in her, that perhaps she might appeal to people who might find Donald Trump to be too acerbic, too strident, too polarizing. But shortly after Loeffler's appointment, Trump loyalist four-term Congressman Doug Collins defied state party leaders, hoping instead to appeal to conservative voters who knew him to be a loyal Trump defender. He ran in the special election on November 3rd. Now, with fierce competition for Republican and Trump supporters, Loeffler, the political novice, adapted. Because you had two very prominent Republicans running among many other candidates, the contest between them was a contest of 
sort of who could capture the Trump right flank of the Republican Party. Both of them were literally trying to out-Trump the other. Kelly Leffler was somebody who certainly tried to highlight her Christian faith, certainly tried to highlight her pro-life bona fides. But then uh, she veered even farther uh, to the right by trying to say that Doug Collins was insufficiently conservative. And she described herself as being more conservative than Attila the Hun. On November 3rd, Loeffler made it into the second place, earning herself a spot on the ticket in the runoff. She received 26 percent of the vote to Warnock's 33 percent. The stakes are greater now after the general election because the race in Georgia will determine which party controls the levers of power in the United States Senate. With President Trump losing the general election in Georgia by more than 11,000 votes, the races are not only competitive. According to the latest polls, the races are too close to call. The National Party's interest groups, advocacy organizations, and campaigns are pouring millions of dollars into Georgia to get out the vote, and that pressure seems to be working, according to Georgia officials. Since early voting began in December 14th, more than 1.5 million Georgians have voted. While Loeffler appeals to Trump loyalists, Reverend Warnock is working to appeal to the positive legacy of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And that, according to Gillespie, is what the Loeffler campaign is seeking to weaken. But the strategy involves appealing to fears about the black church and its leaders. How this relates to the discussion of religion is, is really interesting. So in particular, attacks on Reverend Warnock and on his theology, the first ad uh, that came out that really addressed this came out right after the general election where uh, Leffler linked Warnock to Jeremiah Wright. So first, it reminds us of that sermon that President Obama had to distance himself from as a candidate in the 2008 election when it almost upended his candidacy in the primary. And it focuses on that term that was so provocative, that goddamn America quote. What I think Leffler's pointing to, because, you know, those are the only words that you hear, is sort of the implication that Raphael Warnock supports a Black preacher that uses the Lord's name in vain. And so is violating one of the Ten Commandments. And the thing is, is that, yes, it was meant to be provocative and it's kind of on the line, but we've heard the other sort of parts of that quote. So we know that uh, Jeremiah Wright was critiquing U.S. policies and talking about how uh, not Christian they were. And he was basically saying that God can't bless America, that God's going to curse America. And he's using damn as a verb there. So he's not using it as an adjective or in a way to use the Lord's name in vain, even though by hearing that in church, you will probably kind of like perk your ears up because you're not used to hearing preachers preach in that particular way. We know where the quote came from. So we know that while you may agree or disagree with the statement, he may offend good taste, but he's not actually using the Lord's name in vain. But then there's this larger issue of critiquing America and whether or not that could be viewed as unpatriotic. And so by attacking Reverend Warnock's theology, by linking him to Jeremiah Wright and noting that Reverend Warnock supported Reverend Wright during his controversy during the 08 cycle, by highlighting his support of Black Lives Matter, by highlighting his support of Palestinian rights, by highlighting his support of abortion rights, he's trying to undermine Reverend Warnock as being an Orthodox Christian by saying that his theology is 
foreign and by implication, perhaps even a little bit heretical. So that if people think that he's a good Christian like they are, particularly amongst white evangelicals, that she has helped to disrupt that particular notion by saying, this guy isn't the type of Christian that you think he is. He, in fact, is not familiar to you at all. Gillespie points out that the strategy of attacking the way Reverend Warnock is perceived cannot be separated from his identity as a black man. So PRRI recently published survey data where they asked whether or not it was good for Americans to exercise their First Amendment right to protest. And they did it in a split sample experiment where uh, the right to protest was framed as when Americans do it, it's good versus when Black Americans do it. And it's good. And the interesting finding of that little experiment was that when you frame it in terms of Black Americans protesting, support goes down. And so you have a minister saying things that are tough about America, but it's a Black man who is saying things that are tough about America. So it doesn't really matter that he's a minister, right? It's that there's a Black man who is critiquing America and doesn't sound grateful in the minds of some people. And that's the type of resentment that Leffler is tapping into to say that Warnock is not one of these people like you. In fact, by implication, he's not like that Martin Luther King that you revere, whose pulpit he occupies. And that's a misunderstanding of King, who could be very critical of America and in the latter years of his life was not particularly popular in the United States because he wanted to take on the federal government with respect to the war in Vietnam. But we forget that because we only hear the sanitized version of King, the I have a dream, the triumphant King, we don't know or we choose not to really dig into the rest of the story. In the debates, Gillespie says Warnock was too defensive. But now in the closing days of the campaign, as the attacks on his faith intensify, she sees a shift. Warnock is working to transcend by focusing on the part of his story that he believes will appeal to broader audiences with a message that will echo and remind voters of the I Have a Dream King and cast himself as one who embodies it. I didn't expect him to be as transcendent as he's been. Surprised me there. So he first tried to be preemptive with this. So this is a point where he was on the offense and not the defense. Everybody knew that people were going to go through his sermons and try to like pick out sound bites that were going to be damning to him. So he first was preempted with it with a really humorous ad that says people are going to say all kinds of stuff about me. It's not true. Let's you know make sure that we focus on the issues and still please vote for me. But after the ad started to come out, his response to the ads at first was to invoke the American dream and talk about how it's only in America that a story like mine can happen to basically prove that he wasn't anti-American. And Warnock's response to the attacks from Leffler and her surrogates was to highlight his father, a World War II veteran. He was saying, like, look, I'm not anti-military, right? But he doesn't actually explain his position. And then one of the other ads that he points out is the fact that uh, soon after being sworn in as the senator last year, uh, Senator Leffler appeared at the annual MLK celebration at Ebenezer Baptist Church on Martin Luther King Day last year. I happened to be in attendance at the audience. And so like when I saw the ad, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah I remember that. I was there. That's a joint kind of collaboration. It's mostly led by the King Center. He's on the dais. Uh, and so you can see Senator Leffler coming up and making her very gracious remarks, including the part about wanting to come back. And you see Reverend Warnock in the background. The question is, that was really hypocritical for you to criticize my preaching when you showed up at my church and were on stage with me at the same time. 
I was surprised that in the debate that they had, uh, which was televised nationally, that he didn't come back harder against Senator Leffler, who spent the entire debate basically trying to call him radical leftist Raphael Warnock. Instead of like engaging her on that and actually trying to get her to stop saying that, he seemed to kind of talk around that. I would have expected him to, to hit back a little harder. The political scientist in me probably wanted him to hit back a little harder just because of the concern about the racial messages sinking in and perhaps implicitly influencing and priming voters uh, to make decisions that might be sort of based on subconscious bias. The thing is that by portraying him as a radical Black nationalist, which is basically what they're doing, they are invoking images of scary Black people of other Black people, of Black people who might not be worthy of citizenship, might not be worthy of leadership in the same kind of way. So not like me and you. And by not being like me and you, that still can invoke racial differences in a way that could be scary or could be viewed as demagoguery. The central role of the Black church during the civil rights era is undisputed. Today, however, there are questions about its relevance, its power, and its sphere of influence within the Black community, and the emergence of different theologies in Black churches, ones that are not focused on social justice. Where does Reverend Warnock fit in? There are the debates about whether or not the Black church is dead. Um, I think Reverend Warnock is sort of the embodiment of the ways that the Black church, particularly the prophetic Black church, the one that speaks to social issues, the one that sees itself as speaking truth to power, isn't dead. Um, are there competing theological strains within Black churches? Yes. You know, most people would look at kind of the prosperity gospel as being more individually focused. Um, white evangelicalism is certainly steeped in sort of enlightenment notions of individualism. And that's where kind of some of these tensions lie. We're going to sort of have a discussion and a debate um, about those issues. But Raphael Warnock and Ebenezer Baptist Church are not an anathema within sort of the orbit of churches in the Black community, certainly not within Atlanta or Georgia. There are other churches that from a theological standpoint and from a social justice standpoint are oriented in that direction. So while the big prominent preachers in evangelicalism across low dollar or T.D. Jakes might not be in the vein of Raphael Warnock, there's more than Raphael Warnock out there. There are a number of preachers. And many of them are actually, you know, relatively young. They're older Gen Xers, so in their, their late 40s and early 50s. Mm-hmm. And they still have a prominent voice within the African-American community. Coming up, we meet a former Navy chaplain with roots in Appalachia who wants to mobilize people of faith around the country to respond and push back against the attacks on Reverend Warnock and organize. New Moral Majority, which was founded earlier this year, um, really in order to do a couple things. One was to reclaim what we believe to be a hijacked narrative about who represents the majority of people of faith in this country and reclaim uh, particularly the faith of our founders, in, which is Christianity, in the public square. And then the second was to really um, advocate for the people that we think have been most harmed and pushed to the margins by the current administration. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. 
I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you, and let's get back to the show. Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. And this week, we're taking a closer look at the Georgia Senate race and the attacks on Reverend Raphael Warnock's faith and how clergy are responding. Reverend Warnock is a senior pastor at Ebenezer Baptist Church. That is the storied church of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and his father. Reverend Warnock has been the senior pastor since 2005. Earlier this year, he decided to run for office and is hoping Georgians will put him in the United States Senate. Nearly 800 religious leaders from around the country have endorsed Reverend Warnock in his race against Republican nominee Kelly Loeffler. They are condemning the political ads that her campaign and her surrogates are running that attack his faith and the black church. One of the 25 religious leaders from Georgia who signed the public letter is Reverend David Key. He is the founder of the Lake Akani Community Church between Atlanta and Augusta, Georgia. It's also home to what Key describes as a purple congregation. Key was the director of Baptist studies at the Candler School of Theology at Emory University. He's also been active in ecumenical and interfaith councils in Georgia for nearly two decades, and he's no stranger to religion and politics. He understood that when Reverend Raphael Warnock decided to run for Congress, that undoubtedly his sermons would be scrutinized. But how it's being manipulated and turned into attack ads? For Key, it's going too far. Because of his credentials and because of his multiple decades of preaching, uh, there's lots of material there uh, for folks to be able to look through and to try to find things that they can weaponize. A lot of it is pulled out of context. uh, And in pulling out of context, uh, they try to make it sound more horrifying. You can hear some of the attack lines in this exchange from the nationally televised debate between Warnock and Loeffler on December 6, 2020. You know, my opponent, radical liberal Raphael Warnock, has called police officers gangsters, thugs, bullies, and a threat to our children. When I gave him the chance to apologize in our first debate, he declined. He's also said that you can't serve God and the military. He's used the Bible to justify these types of attacks and make other divisive statements. I was preaching that day 
uh, from a very familiar Matthew text that says you can't serve God and mammon. It was a sermon about a moral foundation for everything that we do and that when you have everything in order, that actually makes you a better soldier. It also makes you a better senator. I'm not going to be lectured by someone that uses the Bible to justify abortion, to attack our men and women in the military. He has called on Americans to repent for their worship of whiteness. That's divisive. That's hurtful. He's celebrated Jeremiah Wright, anti-Semite. He's actually called Israel an apartheid state. That is wrong for America. I have a profound reverence for life and an abiding respect for choice. The question is, whose decision is it? And I happen to think that a patient's room is too small a place for a woman, her doctor, and the U.S. government. I think that's too many people in the room. Uh, But those who are concerned about life, and I certainly am, ought to be focused on the incredibly high rates of infant mortality and maternal mortality in our country. If you want to know who informs me and my sense of how we engage uh, as people uh, in the economic system, uh, you need look no further than Matthew 25. I'm a Matthew 25 Christian. That's what I am. I I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was sick and you visited me. Love your neighbor. And for me, that means you don't get rid of your neighbor's health care, particularly in the middle of a pandemic. They try to make it unpatriotic uh, and try to make it somehow anti-American. And I think if you look at the sermons as a whole, you would see it as a very Christian message coming from a perspective that we in America need to do better and that the Christian standards are calling America to do better. Uh, But because they kind of look at the sermon and find certain audio and video clips, they make it sound like it's unpatriotic. As a minister, I find it very disturbing that someone would literally go back through sermons and try to make uh, political points based off of someone's sermons. The reality is, if religious leaders are preaching in order to run for office at a later date, then they're probably doing pretty poor preaching in whatever religious tradition. It's not just Christianity. Instead, what should be happening is is you should be using your Holy Scriptures and look at a comparison between your Holy Scriptures and society as a whole and making the conversations as to how do you play out as a person of faith in society today. And some of that is countercultural. Uh, whereas others of it may be supportive of the culture. So the countercultural pieces would not probably be politically popular. And yet there's plenty in all of our religious traditions that calls us to be countercultural in how we should live. And when people use that as a political advantage against you, they don't fully embrace the role that that plays. Mm. And they see it as just another speech where you can dissect the speech and make political points off of it. When you step away and look at the demographic shifts and you have a population that is unfamiliar with the theological context, it is almost like it makes it ripe for some creative advertising and manipulation of words. Correct. I mean, I I do think it's a very fertile field for that. I think we as a society have a lot that we need to deal with in relation to social media and the dynamics of constant recording now. 
in times past, a preacher preaching a sermon would have been for those who had gathered. It would have been for that community, you know, limited to in their boundaries. Well, now, thanks to the internet, anything can be posted and from there taken out of context. And the reality in preaching to the dynamics around Atlanta, Georgia, uh, might come across very differently if you're living in New York City or San Francisco, California or Chicago, Illinois, you may not fully understand uh, why that preacher's talking about those dynamics. Reverend Warnock has always been a leader here in Georgia uh, on a variety of issues. Race would not just be one of them, but on a variety of issues. He's always had a uh, prominent role and we know him as a clergy person and I personally respect him as a clergy person. Uh, he's an outstanding Baptist minister. And I think he would bring uh, some fascinating perspective to places of power like the U.S. Senate. And hopefully we'll be able to give words of prophetic uh, dynamic there within the halls of uh, Congress. Our religious leaders speaking out about the the rhetoric in Georgia politics that have elected officials in the Republican Party worried and afraid about their safety because an enemies list is being posted on the dark web. No, they have not spoken out uh, in the way they should and need to, and they should speak out. I've seen in the news, there are people who are advocating violence against public figures. This would be folks in the Republican Party going against Republican leaders. Secretary of State in this situation, I know the governor was attacked as well. There were some elections of people that were done. There were even young young adults that I understand that were threatened um, doing their job. So it, it wasn't just the top line that was attacked. It was going further into the bureaucracy, going down the line. The people got attacked for just doing what they were supposed to do. I think that's wrong. I think that's really wrong. And I think religious leaders of all stripes need to speak out against that. A lot of religious leaders get really nervous when the political landscape becomes something that's unsafe. For some, they don't feel like this is their audience uh, because they may be from a more liberal perspective and they don't feel like they have anything to say to the more conservative. So in some ways, this ball really falls into the court of the conservative clergy who have the ears and the voice within that community that really need to be speaking out. Mm. And we have not heard from them at this point. Reverend Key, I understand that you have signed a statement condemning the attacks against Reverend Warnock and also affirming your support of him as an individual, obviously not on behalf of your congregation. And I understand that's a first for you to publicly do so. Can I ask you to just talk for a moment about why you felt that you needed to do that, particularly given the climate that you've just described? Well, I, we just felt like there were dynamics that are attacking the perspective of Reverend Warnock in ways that just cross the line. And, uh, and and I would say the same thing if somebody was attacking Kelly Loeffler's religious tradition or David Perdue's religious tradition, and then John Offsauce as well. There comes a point that uh, speak about the issues, speak about your differences on the issues, but do not be attacking someone's Sunday morning activities or Saturday or Friday, whatever the religious tradition may be, that you're not attacking their practice and what they perceive as being deeply part of their spiritual and religious life. That's crossing the line that we really should not cross. As the pastor of a Purple Church, are there any tips or suggestions you have on that challenge of moving forward 
Well, I think two words that I often advocate in a variety of settings. One is the word trust and building trust within a group. I think elections sometimes break that down. And I think with social media, people are like, oh, it was deceptive and all kinds of conspiracy theories have broken down trust. And so one of the things I'm really pushing hard is to rebuild trust, both within the church and in the community. And it's a real thing that I'll be advocating in the days ahead. And then the other word is respect learning to respect people, even if they differ from you, and listening to them and realizing that they come with a different perspective than what you come from. Uh, And then hopefully folks, if you have the respect and the trust, and hopefully folks can truly love each other and transcend any kind of ideological uh, division that may be there. That was Reverend David Key, founder of the Lake Akani Community Church in Georgia. Coming up, we meet the founder of the New Moral Majority a political action committee that's hoping to build a core of clergy to not only speak out and challenge the manipulation of faith in politics, but also to support candidates and endorse them, those at least who reflect their moral center. Stay with us. We'll be back after this short break. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. If you missed any portion of this program and you want to listen to the full episode, just head over to interfaithradio.org where you can learn more about us, subscribe to our newsletter, and stream the podcast. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. This week, we're taking a closer look at how faith has become an issue in the Georgia Senate race. All eyes are on Georgia because that runoff will determine which party controls the United States Senate, and there are two seats up for grabs. According to the polls, they are too close to call. Georgia is now a competitive state. In November, President Trump lost Georgia by a little more than 11,000 votes. One of the races includes Reverend Raphael Warnock. His opponent, Republican Kelly Loeffler, has taken to attacking Reverend Warnock's role as a preacher and his faith. And clergy are speaking up and speaking out like David Key, who we heard from earlier. He, along with nearly 800 religious leaders from around the country, have signed public letters condemning the attacks. That effort was organized by a new organization, the New Moral Majority. It is not a tax-deductible nonprofit. It's organized as a political action committee. In fact, it's a super PAC. Earlier this week, I spoke with the founder of the New Moral Majority, the Reverend Ryan Ellers. We spoke by Zoom. But before we dove into the politics, he shared a little background on his journey into this work. In 2006, joined the Navy Reserves as a chaplain, Corps candidate, led change, communities helping all neighbors gain empowerment. For four years, ran some political campaigns, went over and ran change.org in the United States. And then for uh, about seven years, I ran an organization called Define American, which became the largest narrative change organization in the immigrant freedom space. And then, you know, this year found it New Moral Majority. Mm. You are a serial social entrepreneur in the faith-based space. (laughs) Thank you for that. Tell me what drew you to the chaplaincy. 
Well, I, I had always, you know, I grew up in Appalachia. I come from nine generations in Appalachia and had an affinity for service. But that affinity conflicted with my knowledge of politics and the reality that politicians were able to decide who our military personnel killed and didn't kill. And I didn't want to have to, you know, reckon theologically with the idea of taking someone else's life for someone else's political decision. And so my way around that was chaplaincy. When I was there, like 80 some percent of all chaplains coming in were Southern Baptist chaplains because they had done a recruitment to support the war in Iraq. And that was sort of their nod to supporting the war. And me as a I was endorsed by the Alliance of Baptists at that time, and um, we were one of just a few <laughs> in in the Corps. And, of course, it was right after 9-11, and um, I felt that the men and women that were serving, many of whom were my close friends, needed support. They needed spiritual support, counseling. They needed hope and comfort, and their families did too, and so that's why I signed up. majority was founded in order to do a couple things. One was to reclaim what we believe to be a hijacked narrative about who represents the majority of people of faith in this country and reclaim uh, particularly the faith of our founders, in, which is Christianity, in the public square. And then the second was to really um, advocate for the people that we think have been most harmed and pushed to the margins um, by the current administration. So early on, we pushed an effort to endorse the Biden and Harris ticket. And uh, over the months, we grew to now over 800 faith leaders uh, across the country, reaching 22 million people in the general election alone. And and through our Souls to the Polls efforts, drove at least 50,000 people to the polls. And we're now um, doing work, of course, in um, the important state of Georgia. Where does the new moral majority fit in the landscape, if you'd call it, or in the ecosystem of faith-based organizations? Yeah. So so new moral majority is a little bit unique uh, among faith-based organizations in that we're a political action committee at our heart. We've been specifically wanting to publicly support candidates that believe in the values of love, justice, and inclusion. A lot of people take stock in our name, which, you know, references back and recalls the former moral majority, which we believe was neither. The remnants of that former moral majority, however, are still with us, and they built a quite powerful political force on the right, I would suggest in the name of discrimination and power, we're trying to do the same thing, but reclaim our faith and partner with brothers and sisters from various faith traditions in the name of of love. And so we are a bit different in that we haven't been afraid to directly in this unprecedented age, delve into the sphere of electoral politics and say that people of faith do have a central role in determining who will represent us. I've been a part of 
you know, faith-based uh, efforts for a long time. I used to lead the largest multi-faith community organizing group in the South. So I deeply value the prophetic witness of all of our faith um, organizations. But we felt like in founding New Moral Majority, there was a missing link and we needed an arm of the work that could actually just delve right in to impacting elections. And that's what we've done. By organizing as a PAC, did it allow you to tap into or raise funds that you were otherwise unable to raise? (laughs) Well, I wish. Um, You know, I also wish uh, that we didn't have this world that we now live in where, you know, super PACs are being created and, and money is, you know, being shuffled around. No, I mean, we made the decision early on after speaking with a number of attorneys that filing as a PAC would be the most critical way for us to be able to have an impact and to be able to be of support to our partners and and to the folks that wanted to be involved. But we also decided that even though we aren't required to do so, we wanted to be completely transparent uh, about where we were getting our funding and where we have been spending money. And so in all of our filings with the FEC, we report publicly who our donors are. And and that is unlike other PACs, but part of that is because of the ethics that center our work and and our values. How much understanding do you think exists among Georgia voters about what Black liberation theology is? Well, very little. But I do think that people understand who Martin Luther King was. And I think that although he was unpopular in terms of the majority of white folk in his day, we now, uh, of course, rightfully um, honor the tradition of Martin Luther King. We, we see in, in the Pope himself uh, someone who came out of the liberationist tradition that evolved in, in many of the Latin American countries uh, as he was coming up as as a minister. And so I do think that people will resonate with the words of Reverend Warnock when he calls himself a Matthew 25 type of Christian, more so because they understand what that means for their own life and how he will vote and that the values will center how he does his work in, in the Senate if he should be given the historic right to serve in that body and less so because they understand theology, which is ever-evolving. I do hope, though, that it opens up a new conversation about how our theology has been tied to cultural uh, movements and forces in this country and how we have got to reconcile some of that theology with our racist past. I think if we don't, history will not look well upon people who use theology to support things like white supremacy. You're using the pronoun our. I am particularly attuned to the fact that when you're saying that, you're speaking to our being Christian. Kelly Loeffler and the forces that are supporting her candidacy are trying to suggest that black liberation theology poses a threat the way that many see uh, white Christian nationalism as a theological frame. It is a bit striking to see how both of those frameworks for making sense of power and who power should be distributed to are set up against each other almost as this polar narrative that is intended to galvanize. But what sits underneath that is that demographics have shifted so much in the state of Georgia. And so you have now 
over 100,000 Muslims. You have a large, one of the largest Jewish communities in the South living in Georgia, in the greater Atlanta area and beyond. And you also have a growing number of Catholics in Georgia. As uh, Reverend Dr. Warnock seeks to become the next United States senator and is defending himself against these attacks about his faith tradition, he also is attempting to signal to those who are not Christian what his beliefs are, but using phrases and terms that may not be so clear. So like Matthew 25 may make sense to someone from the Christian tradition, but it might not necessarily fall the same way or be heard the same way by a growing number of young people who identify as spiritual but not affiliated or part of the tradition that their parents were raised in. It is not an easy challenge to defend yourself against uh, attacks against black liberation theology while seeking to position yourself as the kind of Christian that will not be exclusionary, that will not be one who views or gives preference to just one tradition. It's a great question, and you're right that it is not easy. Um, but it's way easier to do than if your theological underpinnings are those of the sort of dominant narrative, if you will, that is a theological embrace of white supremacy because at its core, liberation theology believes that God has a preferential treatment for the poor and the marginalized. And it recognizes that some people who have been pushed to the margins have been pushed there because they are not of a faith tradition that is viewed as centered or, or that is the majority mm faith tradition in any culture. And so I, I would suggest that there are some ways that Reverend Dr. Warnock is speaking to that. We're seeing a, a really rapid growth of folks who practice Hinduism and are Sikh in Georgia in particular. And in this way, Georgia and the demographic changes that, ha that you mentioned that have been happening in Georgia are reflective of uh, our larger society. Mm -hmm. Our communities, even rural communities, have um, and are undergoing um, really rapid demographic change. And I think for some, particularly those of us that have been in urban areas, that change has led to a lot of innovation and growth. And we have been a part of some exciting new cultural norms that many people in a lot of our rural communities uh, have felt left behind from. And I, I think that's something real that we need to grapple with in a country that at our best is welcoming to all, but also creates a community where everyone feels like they can belong. Do you think that this intense focus, intense focus on the faith of a candidate has a potential downside in a society that is as pluralistic and as diverse? Is there an unintended consequence of creating such an expectation that people who seek to run for public office must not only talk about their faith, but speak about the most intimate ways in which it informs their thinking when they seek to hold an elected office I absolutely think there's that danger, and this is where we run up against the reality of places like Georgia. I mean, you got to keep in mind, Georgia, according to Pew, is the eighth most religious state in the nation, the highest level of religiosity, the most number of people attending some form of worship in the country. And so, you know, traditionally, when people want to investigate candidates, 
and they want to know not just what your policies uh, and policy proposals are. Voters are left to investigate um, what values center someone's potential vote and how they will operate when they are in office in the, in the Senate for a whole six years as they seek to represent their constituents. And more than that, though, as a community organizer, I've always believed that we don't elect um, leaders, uh, at best politicians or followers. We elect people who we want to negotiate with. And when you're at a negotiating table as a citizen, what values are you able to leverage when you're in that negotiation? And I do think that for many of us, faith has informed our set of values. In a pluralistic democracy with religious freedom, it shouldn't, of course, be a litmus test. And I think there's a, a real danger in us making it so. Mm-hmm. But I also think that that's why it's so dangerous that Kelly Loeffler is attacking, you know, pulling out single quotes from Reverend Dr. Warnock's sermons and trying to use that against him as some sort of uh, litmus test when that is completely extracted from his community as the pastor of his church trying to shepherd them in any given moment. And it's it's devoid of context. I think it's dangerous um, to be doing those sorts of things in the political sphere. And, and that's why I think, frankly, so many faith leaders nationwide are not only coming out now in favor of Reverend Dr. Warnock, but are starting to push back very vocally against these attacks uh, on faith and how it is being used in an election cycle. I really think we need to reclaim the language of religious freedom and religious liberty for what it has historically been in in this country. And that's what we're asking the new administration to do, is to focus instead on issues of religious freedom that support pluralism, that support the separation of church and state, that uh, don't give taxpayer dollars to organizations that will then turn around and use it to discriminate against other folk. I think it's a dangerous game whenever faith organizations start receiving federal funds with strings attached. I would encourage listeners to go to organizations like the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty, the Friends Committee, uh, Americans for Separation of Church and State, and others to find out the things that they have been pushing and will continue to push uh, in the new administration. That was Reverend Ryan Ellers, founder of the New Moral Majority based in Louisville, Kentucky. That's all for this week's show. It is hard to believe that this is episode 52 of the year 2020, a year that has been like no other. We know that that's not true just for us, that we're all in it together. And we hope that you've enjoyed this program and we want to hear from you. As we prepare for 2021, we'd like to know what you'd like to hear. If you have thoughts or ideas or just feelings you'd like to share, I want to hear from you. Send me a message at voices at interfaithradio.org. A special thanks to our producer, Kevin McCarthy, and our founder, Sister Maureen Fiedler, and MC Yogi for our theme music. If you'd like to learn more about Interfaith Voices, the organization that produces Inspired, please visit interfaithradio.org. You can subscribe to the newsletter, to the podcast, and learn more about us. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan. Wherever you are, I hope you are well. 
and I hope you stay connected. We'll see you next week. <music>